It's time for the Chip Race. Hello and welcome to the Chip Race, brought to you in association with Unibet Poker, the poker podcast that refuses to pay ransom to DDoS attackers. I'm David Lappin, alongside my co-host Darrow Carney, and wow do we have a huge show for you tonight. Poker producer extraordinaire and recent Poker Hall of Fame inductee Maury Escandani is here to discuss his phenomenal career. Retired online poker priest and the man who introduced Darrow and I to one another many years ago, John O'Croot, joins us. We welcome back best-selling author turned poker pro Maria Konnikova, who will be keeping us on our toes in strategy corner. Ian brings us the news from all over the poker world plus a look ahead to the third edition of the Unibet Online series starting this week but first DDoS attacks well this month the online poker world has suffered multiple DDoS attacks or distributed denial of service attacks I looked it up Uh, on August 5th ACR was hit on August 9th Party Poker was hit and on August 12th Poker Stars was hit Twitter joked about this being a DDoS triple crown but the truth is these attacks are no laughing matter First of all, Dara, what is a DDoS attack? Well, for those familiar with computer hacking, I think DDoS, if I remember correctly, stands for Distributed Denial of Service, which basically means that a server is attacked by a large number of IP addresses. And it's a cyber attack in which the perpetrator seeks to make the server or network unavailable to its users by disrupting the services. It basically floods the server so that there are so many requests coming in that the server can't handle it. And basically that brings the server down. There's a number of ways it can be done, but they all more or less boil down to hitting the network with lots of superfluous requests, overloading the system. And then the system is unable to distinguish between that and the legitimate requests that it needs to fulfill. I was actually involved in the original World Wide Web project, and I remember the first time this was actually discussed as something which might happen. And unfortunately, the majority opinion, not an opinion I held at the time, but the majority opinion was, well, this will never be an issue because why would anybody ever do this? What would they possibly gain from it? And unfortunately, now the way the basic architecture is done, this is always going to be possible, unfortunately, just by flooding a server with lots of requests. Yeah, so in layman's terms, and I'm very much one of those, when it comes to technology, these attacks sort of bombard the network with requests to the point that it short circuits and can't work properly. Am I right in saying that these attacks come from multiple locations, Dara, and therein it makes it sort of harder for the sites to combat? Yeah, these days they do. I mean, the initial DDoS attacks, from what I remember, they started being a thing in the mid to late 90s, came from specific servers or IP addresses. So they were relatively easy to combat. Once you figured out where the faulty requests were coming from, you just blocked that IP address and that solved the issue. But the hackers have obviously gotten much more sophisticated. And now typically what they do, they actually use normal people's machines. So anytime, for example, if you look at a website and you click on a link, unknown to you, some malware could be downloaded onto your computer. Now, it doesn't do anything bad to your computer, but it does make your computer controllable by the hackers so that when they want to bombard a server in this way and and do a DDoS attack, your machine will actually be one of the machines that will be used. And can you tell me why would somebody do it? You call them hackers. Obviously, hackers have a sort of a vandal quality to them at times, but they can obviously have a more sinister motive. What are those motives? Yeah, I mean, I think the very first DDoS attack was done by just somebody trying to prove that it was possible. And that's typically what the sort of early days of hacking were. The hackers were actually a useful function in showing the shortcomings in the architecture of systems. But it's fair to say that it's not a trivial matter to do a DDoS attack. So you need to at least think that you're going to potentially gain something from it. So traditionally, that game comes in one of two ways. It could just be sort of a criminal gang of hackers who feel that if they target any organization, they can create so much disruption for the organization that the organization will pay them essentially a ransom. And that's generally the motivation. But sometimes it can also be competitors. And back when I worked in IT, this was very much a thing. Anytime one of my clients came 
under DDoS attack, the first thing we kind of looked at was, well, who would benefit the most from this in terms of our competitors? And do we have any reason to believe that they have this sort of capability? Yeah, because if I think back to the first one, ACR were in the middle of their mini online super series. It could certainly be a warning shot as well to party and stars ahead of their WCOOP and Poker Fest series next month. Yeah, the times when any organization, not just poker sites, are most vulnerable to an attack like this is when they're at their busiest anyway, because they'll be operating close to capacity in terms of their servers. And so it doesn't take much to push them over the top. You know, if you just pick a random Tuesday night where almost nobody's using the server, then you would have to absolutely flood it. And even if you did it, like, well, you've only disrupted a couple of hundred users or whoever was on at that time. But if you do it during a big series, first of all, it's easy easier to carry off. And second, you will do the maximum disruption to the company. And so I think irrespective of who's doing it, it's always more likely to happen during these series. Speaking of disruption to the company, that obviously has a knock-on effect to the players, whoever these perpetrators are, and for whatever reason, it's pretty gross for a poker player who's maybe commit to a long Sunday session and then have everything stop suddenly halfway through. It's very frustrating and very easy to maybe look at your poker session as a big waste of time that day and feel very frustrated about logging on the next time. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I mean, a lot of the times when I was brought in to look at who was behind DDoS attacks, there was always a strong suspicion and it's always impossible to prove these uh, suspicions, but there was always a strong suspicion that it came from competitors. Now, in other industries, that can kind of make sense because if you can bring down a competitor server, you cause the major disruption with no real downside for you. Now, I would say that that's not the case in online poker because anytime an online site goes down under an attack like this, it's actually bad for online poker as a whole because you have a lot of people who are already kind of suspicious about online poker and now this is just an additional bad thing. Yeah, I totally agree. There's also the issue of refunds. They're pretty hard to calculate if players have been affected differently, even minutes apart with the DDoS attack on their particular access to the site, or even if they're mid-pot. It's a nightmare for customer support as every account has to be checked one by one. So players are then left in limbo for a few days. Has this happened to you? Yeah, it's happened to me. I mean, I, in, in pretty much all of the major recent DDoS attacks, and the first one that I can remember this year was actually back in April when I was in Montreal, and, I, and the only site I could play on was ACR, and ACR was down for most of the time that I was there because they were under attack. It's very frustrating, obviously, that you can't play, but it's even more frustrating when you're in the middle of a session. I understand that it's really difficult for the sites because they have to refund the money in an equitable manner, and there's actually a fair amount of overhead for them going through every single tournament, seeing what everybody's single stack was, and making the refunds. There is a industry standard now in the way that refunds is done, which to be honest is not equitable, but I understand why they do it the way they do it. If you're still in a tournament and you have less than starting stack, they will refund you the money of your buy-in first. So you're actually getting more out of the tournament than you should because you get some money for still being in the tournament and then you get some money for having chips in the tournament. Um, And it's the people who've built big stacks are the people who suffer from that because they don't get the chip value of their stacks, which would be the most equitable way to do that. But that would be unpopular with recreational players because they would say like, oh, I... I was playing the Supernova and Unibet, say, and uh, I was still in the tournament and then the site went down and I got less of my entry fee back. So I understand why the sites do it the way they do it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, to paraphrase Batman's butler, Alfred, some people just want to watch the world burn. We'll have to see whether these hackers make another move in September, easily the most important month on the online calendar. We're joined now by one of the greatest players in Northern Irish poker history and certainly the greatest online player in that part of the world. He was a hugely successful grinder for about six years before he packed up his mouse and keyboard to go full-time adventuring around the globe in 2016. With four million in online winnings and roughly the same amount in combined live and online winnings, he has a triple crown. He is also a run-at-once coach. He is, of course, John O'Crew. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. I'm surprised and delighted to be here. What's the reason for your surprise? 
I just haven't really thought about poker or engaged with the poker world in two years. Well, I guess this is going to be a trip down memory lane for you. <laughs> let's do it. This is like Michael Aspel. This is your life. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I like that. That's Gary Gilmore's last ever words. <laughs> Before they turned on the electric chair. <laughs> well, Jonah, we first met in 2009 at the Full Tilt Espana Series event in Barcelona. You were there with John Spinks and his crew. I was fortunate to make the final table of that event. And you came looking to me for a sweat, I remember. Buying a piece of my equity, going into the final table, I think maybe paying just a little over my ICM. I later yeah. discovered from one of the pals, now I'd like you to confirm or deny this, that this piece represented about a quarter of your net worth at the time. Firstly, is that true? And secondly, if it is, what the fuck were you thinking? <laughs> well, actually, that is true. But even better than that, it would have been an even bigger percentage of my net worth had I not won a bet from some of those guys for drinking five shots of gin in a minute, like two nights previous. <laughs> so it would have been about 75% of my bankroll had I not already secured the gin money. <laughs> well, you're also the person who introduced Dara and I to one another, as I recall, at the Irish Open in 2011. I remember at that introduction, you insisted to both of us that we would get along. I'm really interested to know what made you so confident of that. The extent of the logic was probably just that I liked both of you and you seemed to have enough in common. So I don't think I thought about it enough to have a really good idea that all of what would follow would happen. <laughs> I don't think I can take credit for your booming friendship. And this podcast. And this very podcast. In many ways, I started this podcast. You're essentially the moniker from Friends of this podcast. Oh, perfect. <laughs> it's about the sixth time this week I've been described as the moniker of Friends of a certain... <laughs> <laughs> Well, you definitely fall into the character of online pro who doesn't like to leave the house. I remember you telling me that I think when you lived in Belfast, you chose an apartment above a Nando's and you had an arrangement with the staff that they dropped chicken up to you at five to the hour. I also think you told me that you were such a regular in that Nando's that they invited you to their staff Christmas party. I know you have a handful of live caches, but how come no love for live poker and how come the setting up of these sorts of arrangements? Well, first of all, for Clary, it was actually Boojum, not Nando's. Boojum oh. needs to get credit for their burrito. <laughs> I just like playing online poker a lot more, though. Like, listening to my own music, and I, I always lived with other online players, so you had people to talk to, and there was a bit more of a, a routine to it. And then, obviously, it's a bit easier in terms of attention. There's more going on. There's, like, making deep runs and stuff, and then if you bust out those, you're, you're still building stacks and other things, rather than having everything rely on, like, one tournament experience or your one tournament life. And also, more importantly, I thought there was a lot more money to be made especially in terms of consistency. Like you could have a really good chance of having a, a profitable year within certain bounds or whatever, playing online if you played enough tournaments, whereas playing live, anything could kind of happen. That life didn't really interest me that much. Well, you did come down uh, to Dublin live for one big tournament. I can't remember which one exactly, but I, I remember you were staying at my house and after you bust, you said you were going back to my house because you had a triple crown sweat. I had no idea what a pop good fives triple crown even was <laughs> at the time, but you explained to me that the reason why you wanted to win it was at the time you, your trademark was you used to wear a, a cap and you wanted to have a picture with three caps to celebrate the triple crown. <laughs> Did you uh, win one right after as well? Yeah, it, uh, you said you told me you wanted to be the first Irish person to win one, and I immediately thought, well, I want to thwart that ambition now. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went. Told you what it was. Yeah, what you shouldn't have told me it was, it was your own fault. I, became, I actually became the first Irish person to win triple crown because of that conversation. <laughs> but I remember coming home and talking to Mrs. Doak about it, and she said, "Yeah, it's incredible. He's been in there for ten hours. He hasn't moved. He hasn't even gone to the bathroom." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> she couldn't believe the level of focus. I mean, that was normal back then. We were playing um, incredibly long sessions, playing 70 hours a week and all. And I know, like, I played some 20 or 24 hour sessions. And when I was living with Espen, he was playing like 36, 40 hour sessions straight. And uh, it just seemed 
like exciting to us at the time, especially then that would have been sort of towards the end of when I was moving up in stakes, which to me was the most exciting part when I played the most hours was when I was moving up because it was like, okay, if we keep winning money, we can play this and we never got to play that before and we can play this one and nine freeze out or whatever every day if we keep winning money. So that was like a good motivating time to play lots of hours because you felt like you were improving your earning potential, you were improving your game and you were playing more exciting tournaments all the time. Uh, it was much harder, I think, to maintain that once you were playing high, like I didn't play super, super high stakes, but once I was playing mid to high stakes online and I was pretty comfortable there, it, it was much less motivating to, to play those long sessions without peeing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it was a key part of my strategy. <laughs> yeah, of course, I mean, back then, I think some of the sites didn't even have synchronized breaks. So yeah. I, I can't remember where I was too, but we were away on some trip and I went to your room to watch you grind online. And it was a real eye-opener for me because you were playing an insane number of tables. You were watching a movie. You were <laughs> scanning some boards. You were chatting to people on Messenger all at the same time. I mean, how easy did the whole sort of multitasking thing come to you? I think pretty, yeah, pretty comfortably, especially back then. I, I imagine you can't do that now. But back then it was just like, you just built it up. I was playing sit and goes at first and then started playing more and more tables of sit and goes. And I moved to tournaments, just felt natural. So playing lots of tables. In fact, it was easier because often in sit and goes, obviously you ended up playing shorthanded and on, yeah. on, on a bunch of different tables. So playing like 20 or 25, like full ring and six max tables wasn't that tough. And then you just moved stuff out to focus on it once, once you got deep rounds. Could I have made more money if I'd like, I don't know if I could have made more money if I played less tables. I probably could have made a lot more money if I stopped watching TV and films and talking to people all <laughs> the time. The money I was making wasn't incredible amounts. Like I was more of a grinder than anything else. But for me at the time at that age and having just like left school with no job and no plans to study and all, it was, it was incredible money. So I didn't really worry too much about whether I could be making a bit more not watching films. You're being very modest here, I have to say. I think to most people, we're talking serious amounts of money. So it's interesting you still see what could have been. Speaking of results, and and, and of course, you, you consider yourself a grinder, but in January 2014, you did have a marquee score when you took down the warm-up for 94K. Was there a number in your head that you wanted locked away before quitting poker? And how close did this score get you to it? I think there was. I had some numbers in mind, but um, looking back, it was more just a mindset thing. Like when I wanted to stop, it came to me really quickly. I realized that I wanted to stop. It, it wasn't like I reached some milestone in profit or in caches or in bankroll or in achievements or anything like that. It just came to me very quickly. Like this is not the life for me anymore. Yeah, that's fair enough. And I think it's fair to say as well, while that was a, an amazing score, one of your other amazing scores didn't come at your own hand. And another string you added to your bow over the years was staking. The decision to stake can add a lot of stress for most players who take it on, frankly, speaking as one who did, and Derek can relate, I'm sure. Can you yeah. tell us why you did that and how it went for you and maybe describe the night I'm alluding to? Okay, so uh, I started staking... I have no idea what year it would have been, but I went to Copenhagen for New Year's Eve with some of my friends and two of the guys were playing poker, but they were studying and they were just like playing small stakes on their own or whatever. And then they basically just got me drunk enough to agree to coach and stake them initially just for the small stake they were playing anyway, but they wanted the coaching and also they wanted to free up their money because they were studying and people need food and drink and whatnot. So it started with two of them there. We were doing weekly coaching sessions, hand history reviews and that sort of thing. And then kind of grew from there. But it was mostly the whole time still through close friends of mine that I would have been staking out. I never advertised publicly really or, or, or took on people I didn't have a relationship with before, which ended up being a good decision because the one person I did end up staking also stole money from me, the one I didn't know from before. So having people be your friends to start with probably defended against that a little bit. 
and staking went fine overall but there was one sunday when i think i decided to take the day off and i went for a motorcycle ride in toronto came back and one of my horses espen was deep in the f-tops main event and the sunday million at the same time he ended up chopping both of them heads up on the same day which is pretty outrageous for anybody but um it was great for him as well because he was reasonably deep in makeup and his first son had already been born or was always due soon i can't remember exactly which um and he was on the verge he actually ended up did stop playing poker and went to study and uh, and support his family that way but it was an incredible score for for both of us to, to come out of that friendship and staking relationship with that as the end i think it was he was planning on stopping playing on the tuesday so he was going to play sunday monday with very very little hope of making any money for himself but he just felt that he wanted to try and get a score and get me some of the makeup back and then yeah he certainly did that wow yeah you're talking about espen sorley there who was a run once instructor as well es- espen had a pretty amazing start to his professional career as i remember i think he might have won two triple crowns in his first week yeah, I mean, he was unbel- he worked unbelievably hard as well. Like, I coached him for a bit and he, he left university to come and live with me, but he basically just played non-stop. Yeah, I mentioned there that Espen was a running ones coach. Of course, you were as well, but I think it's fair to say that Espen probably brought more of a work ethic to being a running ones coach. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think you might have made one or two videos. I can't remember where, but I think you told me that the biggest attraction for you being a run at once coach was that you could go to the run at once lounge. The run at lounge it was amazing. It was like free beer and snacks, and you didn't have to sit <laughs> in the lobby in the Rio talking to poker players. Like that is the absolute dream. I'm locking in to run at once here, by the way. I want to see how many videos I made. I'm going to defend the record here. <laughs> I definitely made more than two. <laughs> I got an email the other day that someone commented on one of them. It might have been me when I was researching this piece. <laughs> Oh, no, don't say that. I want it to be somebody who's still watching, like five years on, just like, oh, I'll check out this guy. He seems like he does what he's talking about. I've watched, I've watched everybody else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's worked his way through the entire catalog. <laughs> who is this John O'Croot? Well, okay, John, on to some of your adventures. You are a man who has lived quite the life off the felt as well. There's been, there's been a lot of weird stories. My favorite is the uh, Detroit story. I was actually playing online one night and you came on and you were like, uh, what's the name of that thing you need to get into America? <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, first of all, it's called an ESTA. You can apply for it online. But, but secondly, why do you want to know this? And you were like, well, we, we were out for the night and we decided we'll just catch a flight to the States. Yeah, well, we used to have a few beers after sessions. And obviously with the time zone in Ireland not being the best, we'll be four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning whenever we finish. And you're kind of too wired to sleep. So we would just sit in the house, drink a few beers. And one night we ended up on chat roulette or one of those things. Started chatting to this girl, kind of made like pen pals with her for a couple of weeks. And then um, <laughs> went out drinking, came home, called her, and then her internet cut out. And we were just like, right, well, we'll just go there then. <laughs> so she lived in <laughs> northern Michigan. Um, we got the taxi to Dublin airport uh, contacted you first then went to my mom's house actually in the middle of the night got my passport had to wake her up pick up my passport to tell her we were flying to Detroit for some reason God help that woman and then flew there woke up and were like right well this was a terrible idea wasn't it when I was just in Detroit and like a five hour drive north of here and we don't even know her anyway it's a really weird thing to be here so we tried to decide what on earth we were going to do we went out one night in Detroit realised that it was not the most terrible place I remember we were in an Irish pub called the Old Shillelagh. It had like three people in it and we were drinking for a while there. And then when we left, the bar staff was saying, oh, you'll, you'll be back here in half an hour. And we were like, no, no, we're going to go explore places. Like we've never been to Detroit before. There must be loads of places to see. And I think it was 20 minutes that we were back in there. 
<laughs> so then we woke up the next day, decided we couldn't stay in Detroit. It was like 10 days or something to our flight home. Decided to rent a car, went to a load of car rental places. I didn't have a license at this time either, but Gareth had one. And they wouldn't rent us a car without a credit card. And neither of us had a credit card. And then met a policeman. He told us about a place where we'd be able to buy a, a vehicle. And he drove us out through like eight mile and all like all the M&M area. As I like to call it. <laughs> and it was absolutely terrifying. People just stood outside the house. The whole family just stood outside the house doing absolutely nothing. And we couldn't work out what was going on. Uh, <laughs> and he just dropped us off in the middle of nowhere. and was basically like, yeah, good luck, guys. And I think, <laughs> like the conversation along the way when he was driving us, he just realized that we were absolute lunatics. and was just like, I cannot wait to get these people out of my car. <laughs> He just dropped us off and we ended up buying a truck for a thousand dollars, like an old pickup truck, like a 22 year old pickup truck or something. And they told us we had 10 days to register the, the transfer of ownership. And we were like, well, we're going to sell it again in 10 days. So we won't even bother doing that. And the, the guys found us insurance for two, like a two week insurance deal. And we just drove the four or five hours north to Petoskey in, in Northern Michigan to meet our new friend. <laughs> and uh, Must have been a lovely say, surprise for her. Well, we went we went into her work and she was just absolutely terrified. She worked in this coffee shop. <laughs> She's just like, "What on earth are you doing?" Like, just like visibly shaking. And all our friends are like, "Who are these weirdos? Have they like done something to you before?" You're clearly terrified of these people. <laughs> but once she calmed down, it was fine. We, we had a pretty good night there. We stayed in the, this hotel and when we checked in, we asked her to show us some good pubs on the map or whatever. And she put four circles and was like, "That's all of the pubs." <laughs> And then uh, we left the next day because we thought staying 10 days with this person would be extremely hard. <laughs> so we just drove to Chicago and made a few more stops and then drove from Chicago back to Detroit for our flight home, sold the truck back to the same guys that we bought it from for like $700 or something, which is not bad. Eight yeah, you basically rented it. Yeah, pretty reasonable. And they tried to give us like 400 for it as well. And they were like, we know you're leaving because we told them the whole story. They were like, what else are you going to do? Like, you've got to get on a plane. You're always going to take this 400 and I just said to them, oh, no, we could, we could scrap it for more than that, which is something I knew from like Grand Theft Auto. I had no idea about <laughs> every, every old thing that happened, but I'm just like, that. that's definitely a thing in GTA. Like these trucks get loads of money. So I just told them that and they were like, oh yeah, fair enough. We'll, we'll, we'll give you the 700 for it, whatever it was. We're like, oh, yes, absolutely <laughs> negotiated. Yeah, and then we spent one night in Atlanta and then flew back to Dublin on Christmas Eve. <laughs> That is an absolutely brilliant story. Um, I don't know how you're going to follow that, but I hope that you can. After leaving poker in 2016, I think I'm right in saying that you decided on a motorbike adventure across America. How was that? And do you mind telling us another idiosyncratically Jono story about a night you fell afoul of the law? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I went to drive my motorbike from Toronto to Tijuana. I knew some people, like American poker players that were living in Tijuana. And my uh, English friend, Daniel Pacman, was interested in going there for a while. So we decided to sort a place out through one of these like poker playing agencies or whatever, the sort uh, apartments mostly for Black Friday Americans or whatever in, in Mexico. And I decided that the best way to get there would be to drive. Um, not realizing that Toronto to Tijuana is a pretty long journey. It just like if you zoom out enough on the map, it seems easy. So I decided to <laughs> give that a go. And I left on November 1st and it was snowing in Toronto. And I had a very miserable, miserable time of it getting through the sort of northern states, just pointing my bike towards the south, hoping it would get warm eventually. And uh, I made it to New Mexico, which I must say I prefer the original. The sequel is never as good in New Mexico. It's <laughs> up to that. And I was just trying to get to, um, what's the place where all the aliens are found? Roswell. Yeah, Roswell, yeah. I was trying to get to Roswell, and I booked a motel for there. 
And I was half asleep on the bike, just sat there on the longest, dullest road of all time. And then I noticed that um, people on the other side, like oncoming traffic, were pulling into the shoulder as they went past me, which was confusing because my bike's like not that wide. So uh, I looked behind me and there was a police car flashing its lights, which I assumed had very recently started flashing its lights trying to pull me over. So I pulled across the side of the road and this one police officer came out of the car, pointed a gun at me. And I was like, <laughs> this is not great so she tells me like take my helmet off take my, I, I gotta take my gloves off first because I can't get the helmet off without taking the gloves off and she's pointing the gun and yelling at me again like asking what I'm doing so explain this all to her she asked me what Ontario is because that was on my license plate she's like what mad state is this I don't remember this state <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's Canada like that's a different country explain to her that I'm driving from Toronto to Tijuana which obviously confused her she told me that she'd been trying to pull me over for speeding and that she had planned to give me a bit of a telling off about speeding, but because it had taken me so long to pull over, she was having to call her superiors and see what she had to do. So How long so, had it taken uh, her? Uh, we worked it out because in her statement, it said the speed and the distance. And it worked out like three and a half minutes, which like, I, I admit three and a half, that's not great. Like you should probably see someone. That's, that's like, probably about five miles on a motorbike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if your road awareness is like <laughs> any use, you should probably notice a police car, like with siren lights. <laughs> Three Within the half. first three and a half seconds, let alone three and a half minutes. Like, I'll grant you that. That that one's my bad. Like, fair enough. But I think their reaction was a little over the top in the end. So she decides that she's going to have to arrest me. And I was like, right, well, that doesn't sound great. Um, <laughs> she, she arrested me and put me in the back of the car and then took me to uh, jail. <laughs> the Lee County Detention Center. Never going to forget that name. And uh, I've tried to find my mugshot, by the way, but I can't find it, so... Oh, can we use it for the episode? <laughs> but I'm, uh, I mean, to be honest, I'm trying to bury that if it is on the internet somewhere. I'm just like, I don't mind telling the story, but uh, I'd rather not that be like one of the first things, you can, especially when I start to apply in Irish courts for a liquor license and all. Wait, Jono, you're gambling on our best researchers not finding that now because there's no <laughs> way I'm not going to look for it. How many researchers do you have? Who are your best ones? <laughs> it's definitely just you two. <laughs> it's actually just him. <laughs> I'm too lazy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I remember he's terrible with technology. So. It reminded me what a record button looked like earlier, so I should be fine. <laughs> yeah, he's still going to be typing into Yelp or something. <laughs> <laughs> Reviews of my arrest. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they ended up charging me with aggravated fleeing of a police officer, which is a federal crime. That was the bad yeah. one. And then some other things, reckless driving, failure to maintain traffic lane, uh, because I overtook a truck during this accidental car <laughs> Like, so the truck was going so slow and I'm just like, why is this guy going so slow? Like, this is dangerous. I can't sit behind him at this speed. So I just overtook him. <laughs> yeah, so that was failure to maintain traffic lane and then speeding, um, obviously. And then uh, I was three nights in jail before I was able to contact anybody, which oh. meant that everybody thought I was dead. Because if you go on a motorcycle trip on your own and disappear for three days, you're probably just in a ditch somewhere. Oh, so. Yeah. People were contacting hospitals and all in the area of where people last knew I was. Actually, the only person who wasn't worried is Gareth because the last message I sent to Gareth was that I'd met a guy from Tipperary in Texas and he owned a pub and I was going out with him and Gareth just assumed I was still on a mad bender with him three days later. <laughs> I like, hadn't charged my phone because I was having such a good time. In fairness, that was plausible, I'd say. Back <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Although I, I, wish, I wish that was what happened. Yeah, then when I eventually got hold of someone, I had to pay, my bail was $5,500. So I phoned another Running Once Pro, James Hudson, good friend of mine. He paid that over the phone to a bail company. And to be fair, the, the bondswoman was lovely. She came to pick me up <laughs> because I had phoned her and said, 
listen, could someone pay this with a credit card? Because I don't know anybody in New Mexico to like come and give you cash. She said, yeah. So we sorted that out. And then she came to pick me up and was like, yeah, they don't really do taxis out here. And I thought if you didn't know anybody, you might need some help. Uh-huh. So she drove me to a motel um, where I ended up staying for like a month and all the charges ended up being dropped. Oh, actually, another bad thing that happened. Uh, I forgot the story's full of bad things. There's loads of them. It's easy to forget them. It's not uh, going to be a rape in jail, is it, John? Oh, no, although although there was a lot of warnings from some of my fellow inmates that were I moved into a general population that might occur because I was so good looking. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, okay. Well, it, it is true, John. I have to say, you wouldn't survive a day in prison. That is especially fair. back then with the long hair and all. Well, so, yeah. I'll decide later whether I want you to actually include this bit, but... <laughs> <laughs> The classifications officer came in when they were going to move me into general population when I still hadn't got a hold of anybody. And he had to fill out a form that was basically saying, was I in a gang? Did I have issues with anybody in the jail so they could place me somewhere where there wouldn't be trouble or whatever? And the bottom of his form just said, do you consider this inmate to be at high risk for sexual assault? And it was supposed to be filled in by him. And I just watched him tick yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then under it, it said, why? And he just said, long hair, slight build. (laughs) And it looks somehow, a bit like Harry Styles. Yeah, despite being absolutely terrified, I asked him to put kind eyes on the end of that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see if that makes it into the podcast. I'll decide whether the fact that I'm at high risk for sexual assault while in jail is something I want the poker world to know. They know it already, Jono. I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So shortly after I got out of jail, before the charges were dropped, which, again, to be clear, all the charges were dropped, I, was, I have been convicted of no crimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I went to get my bike from the impound uh, and my brother had flown. He was in LA and he flew to New Mexico to help me pick a lawyer and like work out what on earth was going on because I couldn't really understand why I'd even been in there or, or, or what was going on or how serious the charges were or how you we were supposed to progress from there, you know, like trying to find a lawyer and all the rest of it. So he had driven me out to the impound, picked up my bike. We got about 20 minutes back down the road and I got hit by a like 18 wheeler lorry. Fuck. From behind, totaled the bike and broke my collarbone, which was an interesting experience as well because I didn't realize anything was wrong until about 20 minutes after the crash. And I looked to my right and my shoulder was just above my head. Jeez. Like, like, wow, that doesn't seem right. But it turns out adrenaline's a hell of a drug. Yeah, then ended up flying the rest of the way, uh, now with no bike and no collarbone, landed in San Diego, <laughs> walked into Tijuana, not as triumphant as I expected. I had this beautiful <laughs> vision myself riding a motorcycle like down the pacific coast of mexico to my new home to like my plan was to play three or four more months of poker and just play a lot of poker before i stopped but i just ended up like near crippled and having spent time in jail like a month later later than i expected to be there walking across the border with all my bags oh. yeah I actually met you in Toronto shortly before you embarked on this wonderful voyage. And <laughs> you explained to myself and Marie what you were going to do. And she was like, she said to me afterwards, like, even by Jono's standards, that's, <laughs> that seems unwise. Yeah, I learned a lot. I'd, like, actually, I'd love to go on another motorcycle trip, but I would definitely do it with somebody so that if anything goes wrong in terms of your health or, or the law or any of that stuff, you have someone else there. That would make things a lot easier. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Well, uh played the mega stack at the weekend and McCluskey came down to stay with me and we went for dinner the night before and we, we were reminiscing and your name came up quite a bit. And then I was really surprised to see you in the chip counts. Uh, <laughs> but the following day, when it was like, oh my God, is he back playing again? And then I saw you the next day. So what prompted this return from the dead? Um, so I just got back to Ireland from Germany. So for the last 
sort of two years. I've been working in breweries and then I went to study. I studied in Chicago and then in Munich to become a master brewer. So I just passed all my final exams for that like two or three weeks ago. Congratulations. Um, well done. Thank you. So then came back to Ireland and as the two of you know, and maybe some people listening might know if they talked to me and Gareth before. So me and Gareth have talked about opening a bar for a long time or a restaurant for a long time. Uh, it was our main interest for sure outside of poker has always been the hospitality world. And then once I stopped playing poker, I got a job at a really, really top restaurant called Buka in Canada, which was a pretty incredible experience. The top number one restaurant in Canada. And it was amazing, but it sort of made me realize that I didn't actually want to work at a restaurant. <laughs> so I work at a brewery and studying became a certified beer sommelier and then started studying the brewing side and came back to Ireland with the intention of getting a job in a brewery after going to visit Canada got to visit all my friends there so I booked my flights to Canada um went down to Dublin didn't get my ETA approved in time wasn't allowed to check in <laughs> for the flight <laughs> and Gareth had phoned me the day before to say he'd lost his job he'd been managing a restaurant in Cookstown and then we just decided like this is the ideal time to actually do this like get a proper business plan ran up he has money to not be rushing back into work straight away and i have nothing to do so we just sat in his house and just started writing business plans and then we decided to finish the market research sections that we wanted to go to um cork limerick and galway so we realized that that tournament was happening along the way this that last weekend or whatever it was it feels like a lifetime ago two, two days ago whatever it was <laughs> um that was happening in Dublin. So we decided to stop there on the way. We have to go through Dublin anyway. So stopped, played the tournament, actually cashed the tournament, which surprised me. And then we went on, we were in Cork the last two nights and I'm sat in a hotel in Limerick now. Checking out other people that are doing similar stuff to what we want to do and also um, just visiting and trying different beers and, and seeing what's going on in the brewing world in Ireland now. Well, in fairness, Limerick is probably the Detroit, Michigan of Ireland. So that's a perfect yeah, well, spot for you. <laughs> we like an underdog as well. I feel like Belfast has certain reputations in the rest of Ireland as well. Like I think it's turning around a lot now. People understand that Belfast is a great city to visit, great city to eat in, great city to drink in. Like live music's unbelievable, and I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions about Limerick as well. Yeah, uh, there is for sure. Yeah, it's it's just Dublin snobs like David. I, I actually yeah. own a place. I own I own a place in Limerick. I've never actually seen it, but uh, <laughs> my, my daughter lives there, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, that was one of the reasons we wanted to go. Plus, uh, they have a, a brewery here called Treaty City that seem to be doing good stuff. And I think maybe because of that reputation, there might be a, a little cheaper to, to open up here than it would be um, in Cork or in Galway. So I may be wrong about the misconceptions. Maybe you'll get a message from me in hospital tomorrow or something. But <laughs> like, it looked nice enough on the walk from the bus station to the hotel. We, we stopped for one beer and a nice beer bar owned by Galway Bay Brewery. So... I don't know. I'm excited to see. Well, it sounds generally like you're at the beginning of yet another adventure. Your poker career may have been short, although probably longer than most, but it is great to see someone leave the game with a heap of money in their back pocket. On behalf of Darren, I, the very best of luck with your future endeavours. Perhaps we'll see you on the tables. Maybe you'll become one of those baller retirees who just rock in for the high rollers. No, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much, Jonah. Yeah, thanks, Jonah. It's time for Ian Simpson with the news. Hello, welcome back to the news. First up, we are delighted to announce that the Unibet Open will be coming to Dublin in November, specifically November 21st till the 25th. Details will follow on the next week about the venue. Uh, I've got to say I'm very excited to be heading back to the Irish capital. 
Now, if you want to get involved, there are 250 euro satellites to win 2K packages every Sunday and every Wednesday on unibetpoker.com. That's a nice little plug for you, boys and girls. And there's, of course, 50 euro feeders to the 250 final and feeders into the 50 euro game. So no matter what your bankroll, you can have a little shot to try and get yourself over to Dublin. It's going to be amazing. There's a dedicated Facebook page for the Unibet Open Dublin for this specific event. So if you join that, you'll find all the extra updates as they come along. Very excited for this one, dude. Yeah, I can't wait. Now, I have to say, a lot of work behind the scenes now. Nick O'Hara, of course, a fantastic tournament director in his own right, but also tournament organiser and events organiser. He's teaming up with Natalie and her Unibet team to hopefully put on what will be, I imagine, maybe the best Unibet Open of the year. I mean, they're two of the best in the business, so how can it not be? And it's in Dublin. Poker in Dublin is just the best. Exactly. Exactly. Next week, we've got the Belgian Poker Championships kicking off in Blankenberg. I'm good to be missing it. The main event is a 550 re-entry. It's got three starting days, with the third one being a turbo. Yeah, this is another one of Kenny Spacey FCB Hallert's babies here. Kenny TDs this one for us. We're very lucky to have him. And yeah, a great event. I was at it last year, and I'm going to be there again this year. Can't wait. Moving on, the IPO satellites are going well. As we mentioned last week, the International Poker Open is partnered with us here at Unibet. The 300 euro event starts on the 24th of October. It promises to be a really fun event. There are five euro tournaments every night on Unibet and there is a 30 euro satellite to try and win yourself a seat. So get involved with that. Yeah, that 30 quid satellite is on a Sunday. It's sort of the final. It's a really good tournament. Loads of value in it there. All those qualifiers getting in for a fiver during the week. Happy days. This week, much of the poker world has descended on Barcelona for the EPT. So far, we've had a couple of big winners. Malaysian poor Michael Soiza won the 10k high roll up at 300,000 euros. This is on a final table that included Luke Greenwood, Dario Sammartino, and Liv Boré. The EPT National boiled down to three Frenchmen Julian Martini, Jean Rene Fontaine, and Alberto Aline, fighting it out for the 550k first prize. In the end, it was won by Jean Rene. Congratulations to him. Yeah, an excellent pronunciation there on the French guy's name. I got, I got to say, amazing to see it get down to three Frenchmen because not everybody is in the Catalan capital right now in Barcelona. There are 398 people in Goujon Mestre in France near Bordeaux at Alex Henry's DSO there. Huge turnout for him, one of his biggest turnouts ever in that part of the world. So obviously poker is very healthy in France. Absolutely. The scariest story this week is news of the Spanish trying to backdate tax claims on old poker winnings. Hossein Ensign received a bill recently for over 200,000 euros. Now this is due to him making the final three of APT Barcelona in which he cashed for 650k. So they're after a third of his winnings. Now Ensign said that he settled up on his taxes with the local German officers. So when this bill arrived, I can only imagine his despair at this situation. Yeah, we've been reaching out now to other Spanish players possibly affected by this. It certainly put off a lot of Germans travelling to Barcelona this weekend. It could put off a lot of people going forward. Yeah, scary stuff. You want to know exactly what you owe straight away. But finally, to end on a positive note, the Unibet Online Series is back for the third time. Now, there are three tiers of buy-ins. You've got the Nano, the Low and the High. So there's buy-ins to suit every grinder's needs. Not only that, there's a leaderboard for each tier and an overall leaderboard. If you place on the leaderboard, you get extra money, with obviously the lion's share being at the top. So I'm going to be grinding every single day live on Twitch, and I'm going to plug my Twitch stream, because why not? Twitch.tv slash Ian Simpson Poker. I've already asked the bosses for extra free rolls and extra tickets to give away to my viewers, so make sure to stop on by and see how well I can do in this online series. 
Yeah, I gotta say, I take the piss out of you a lot, Ian, but I have to say, your coverage of these UOS series has been absolutely brilliant. Really looking forward to watching some of your streams again. Excellent, happy days. Also got to say, if you do manage to get there and win the leaderboard, you'll join me in the Battle of Champions. There will be a Battle of Champions event, I think, in the first Unibet Open event in the new year. If you win the overall leaderboard, you'll get into that. Dara O'Garney, of course, narrowly missed out on getting into that when he came second in the last one. So, you know, fingers crossed for the ambassadors. I'd like to see some of you guys join me in that one. That would be a lot of fun. We can't let you be the only one who makes it. Absolutely. Well, that's all from the news this week. Thank you very much. For a strategy segment this week, I'm delighted to welcome back to the show our season five guest, best-selling author turned poker pro, Maria Konnikova. Maria, welcome. Thank you so much for having me back, guys. Hi, Maria. Hi, dear. Well, quickly before we get into the hand history, how's poker been going for you the last few months? The last few months have been up and down. I had a pretty, I want to say decent in the, in the grand scheme of things run during the World Series. And I say decent in the grand scheme of things because I managed to end the summer only slightly down. And I know lots of people who ended it very much down. So, so I'm pretty happy with how that went. And I did well in the main event. That was a nice deep run. So that was good. And then I took a little bit of time off. And then I went to Florida very last minute. I wasn't planning on going because everyone told me how amazing the Seminole Hard Rock series usually are. So I decided to just within 24 hours do a very quick trip down there. Yeah, we ran into you in Vegas. We were lucky enough to meet you in person finally and hung out a bit in Vegas. It seemed like when we met you first, you were you were feeling it a bit. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was definitely feeling Vegas. I'm very glad not to be there anymore. I did everything I could, but you know, six weeks in Vegas just takes it out of you. Absolutely, yeah. Well, very important, of course, as you pointed out there, that when you have a, a slight losing trip, very important to have good friends who had really, really bad losing trips. So exactly, <laughs> exactly. So comparatively speaking, I actually made lots of money. <laughs> well, look, onto the hand. It is actually from the Seminole Hard Rock Poker Open main event. It's one of those big blind anti-events. So the blinds, I think, for this hand are 300-500 with a 500 anti. That's perfectly normal in those. Can you take it from there? Yes, absolutely. So when we start the hand, I have about 57k behind and I'm the effective stack. So Villain is going to have me covered a little bit. And Villain is someone who I've been playing with all day, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So he raises under the gun plus one to 1200 and I'm in the big blind and it folds to me and I have jack eight of hearts, um, lovely hand in the big blind, lovely hand period. And I call. So that brings us to a pot that is 3,200. And then the flop comes six, seven, nine, two hearts. And at this point, I am absolutely loving life because I have an open ender. I have a heart draw. I have a straight flush draw. I mean, I have it all. So I check and he bets 1,500. So a little less than half pot. And I decide to check raise um, to 4,000 because there are kind of a few things going through my mind. We'll talk about that in a second. And one of the things I'm not expecting to have happen is to be re-raised. And that's exactly what happens in this hand. He ends up three-betting me to 11,000. I end up calling, bringing the pot to just over 25,000 as we head to the turn. So when I check raise, he actually shouldn't be raising me a lot on that board because it's a bad board for almost any hand that he'd be raising for early position. I mean, if he has aces, he's not loving life on that board. And I have jack high, but I have just this absolute monster draw, lots of equity. It's a pretty good spot for me to be raising because I can have a lot of worse hands as well there. 
Yeah, so plenty of action there on the flop. You're obviously sitting there with the world's fair draws. I think these hands are actually really interesting because playing monster draws correctly isn't always the easiest thing to calculate. Dara, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting board because often people look at these boards and think, well, the big blind has a huge advantage on this board. And certainly in terms of knotted hands, we can have all the knotted hands, we can have straights, we can have sets, we can have two pairs. But I think the opener also can have probably all of the sets, maybe not as many straights. And because of that, we could possibly have a leading range on on a board like this where we think we have an advantage. And if we were going to have a leading range, then obviously Maria's exact hand, Jack Eight of Hearts, which is basically Jack High, but a monster draw would be a good hand to do it with. The other way to go is to, to go for the check raise like Maria did. We can fold out a lot of hands that are actually ahead of us right now, which is obviously a good result. And we can build a pot for if we hit our draw. Uh, I mean, I think our draw is so big as well that we could possibly just check call here because I think we do have a lot of other weaker hands that want to check call and we have to check call some really strong draws as well to protect that range. So, you know, when we check call, it's not always like A7, A6, those types of hands. So I think there's actually a lot of things we could do on this board. For sure. And one of the reasons that I actually decided to raise as opposed to call is I also do have some, you know, made hands on that board. So I do have the straights and I actually do have the sets. Um, and it's such a wet board that it, in case I have one of those hands that's pretty much always ahead, you know, imagine that I had 10, eight of diamonds. So I flopped the nuts, but what if he's sitting there with like ace, king of hearts? And so I decided that I didn't want to check call because I will want to be check raising some of my strongest hands as well. So I was trying to balance that range. And I actually don't really have much of a leading range out of the big blind with an early position raiser. Maybe that's kind of a leak in my game, but that's not something that even crossed my mind. But I actually see the merits in that now that you guys mention it. Yeah, I mean, I think actually while this board initially looks like a great board to lead on when you actually drill down into it, it's too difficult if we start leading this board with some of our strong hands, then that weakens our check call and our check raise ranges. So uh, yeah, I, I actually think... We probably should check on this board, but it's feasible to at least think about leading. Mm -hmm, For sure. The second interesting thing that happens in this hand is, as you pointed out, Maria, that you get three bet to 11K. Now, that is something you definitely don't expect when you have the perceived hand range advantage. So you're sort of immediately on the back foot trying to calculate, well, what does this guy have? Obviously, he may have come in here for a a C bet on a pretty wet board with a big draw himself. That's logical, particularly if it's not ace high. I like a flush draw to maybe take this line from him, particularly if that flush draw has maybe a gutter as well or something attractive of that nature. So once that happens, it definitely feels as though you're up against a real hand, either a real, real hand or a real strong draw hand. And your decision to call rather than, I guess, which is the other option you have is just to lamp it in and sort of go, well, look, I've got a huge draw. Come at me here if you've got something. And maybe you get a fold off somebody who has... I don't know, a hand with okay equity in that spot, which is obviously the ideal situation. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That was not a snap call. And I'm sitting there thinking, what in the world does he have? Do I want to get it in? And I decided that, you know, I probably don't really want to get it in against this particular player because he's very, very aggressive. He's been playing aggressively all day. He's been three betting light. He's someone who likes to get out of line. And with my monster draw, if he has a made hand, I can get a lot of money from him if I actually hit my draw. You know, and if he's on a draw, that's worse than my draw. I just want to keep him in there. So that's why I decided to just call as opposed to just go crazy and get all the money in on the flop. 
Yeah. Once we get raised, I definitely prefer calling. I mean, people often fall into the habit of just playing their really strong draws really fast and just, just getting the money in. But what they kind of lose sight of the fact is that a lot of profitability of that play is when the opponent folds. And sometimes we just don't have fold equity. Um, I, I think when he raises again on the flop, it's very difficult to imagine he's got a hand that he's doing this, that he's prepared to fold because he's going to be getting a pretty good price if we do shove. And I mean, we're not actually in great shape against a lot of his hands. I mean, he can have a set and obviously we have lots of equity or almost worse for if he has something like ace king of hearts mm-hmm. where uh, he's actually ahead at the moment and our flush outs are not good and we're basically just playing our jack our eight and our straight outs so I think when we check raise we're basically hoping he folds which is the not result or he just calls and then we get to play turns and rivers I think getting raised again is not what we were hoping for um, <laughs> that's, and, uh, that's right yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, we're hoping for a fold there. I mean, we have Jack High. I think it's really easy to lose sight of that because it is such a monster draw, but it is Jack High. It's a tournament as well. So we are incentivized not to get all of our chips in, you know, roughly flipping. It's absolutely. And this is a single re-entry, but we are already on bullet too. So we are out if we are out on this hand. Well, onto the turn there, Maria. It's a sort of an uneventful one, but that in itself creates interesting dynamics. Yes. So the turn is a three of diamonds, um, which is basically a brick. And I check and he makes it 13,000. So this is 13K into a pot that's about 25K. So we're looking at about half pot. And at this point, folding could be an option, but honestly, the price is really good once again. And I still um, have a decent amount of equity. I mean, I still have a good hand, but I did consider folding. At the end, I did decide to call given how aggressive he is. And I decided to just wait and see what happened on the river. Yeah, I think we're getting the right direct price against Assess. And that sort of still seems like the top of the range we can give him in this spot. So I, I really like your decision to call there. He has laid you a, a compelling price. The one interesting thing as well about this is, is that Jack, it might seem like not that interesting a card, but because it makes a bigger straight if the 10 ball comes, and that could very well be something he's semi-bluffing with an 8x hand himself, then suddenly, you know, you blindside him in that spot, which is always pleasant. Yes, and that's actually something that I was thinking about. Yeah, I think the unpleasantness we've had on the flop kind of lingers on to the turn because uh, <laughs> I mean, the, t- the 10 is the not card for us, obviously, and we're going to be very happy if a 10 comes. But like, we're not necessarily completely thrilled if a heart comes because, first of all, he can have the flush himself, obviously, and, and it'd probably be a higher flush. But secondly, it'd, it'd be pretty obvious to him that a lot of our range is flush draws, so it'd be quite difficult to get paid off. Similarly, if the five comes, you know, it's pretty obvious now that there's four to a straight on the board. Again, hard to get paid. But given the price we're getting, I think we definitely have to continue. Absolutely. Well, over to the river. We're funking for our flush and straight outs here. What happens? We we just completely break. The river is an offsuit four. And at this point, I don't really think I have a choice. I check. He bets tiny. I mean, at this point, the pot is over 50K and he bets 11K. But I mean, what am I going to do? I'm here with Jack High. I don't think he's bet three streets with air. Yeah, always sad to have to give up in these spots. But it's interesting looking at this bet, 11K, as you say, into about 50. You know, we've missed our draw and we face a really small value bet in the river having shown so much strength, this does feel like a very fishy bet from him, something that can be very suspicious of, almost like our opponent has sized us up really well for what we have, a big draw that's missed, and now he's inducing you to make a big move here. Yeah, so, you know, like I said earlier, this guy has been really aggressive, and I actually expect him when he misses a lot of the time to bet big. So he's someone who likes to bully people out of pots a lot. And he has given me really good prices on all three streets. And that just sets off alarm bells. 
because I actually block a lot of his draws because I have the eight of hearts in my hand. Yeah, Derek, can you speak more to exactly the point Marie has made, which really does echo our strategy hand from a few weeks ago with Neil Farrell, where he talked about sort of like the worst bluffing candidates in these spots being the big draw hands, particularly the big flush draw hands. In this case, obviously, we have a straight blocker as well. Yeah, absolutely. It reminded me very much of Neil's hand. Like anytime we get to the river with one of the worst possible hands that we could have, and I think Jack Eyes is about as bad as it gets for us, we should be considering bluffing. Now, if we were going to bluff, it would be better to lead in this spot, even as weird as that would be, because if it goes check, check, we're never going to win. So it works better as a, as a lead bluff than a check race bluff. But the problem with our specific hand is that it's almost the worst hand we could do it with because it blocks the flush draws, which we're hoping he has, yeah. uh, which we might get him to fold. And it's also blocking his 8x. So I literally can't think of a worse hand to bluff with than this hand. Yeah, you know, I was just, I was thinking about it. I'm, I'm just blocking all of his bluffs because even if he opens a lot of the suited aces, like I'm blocking that ace jack of hearts, yeah. the ace eight of hearts, like so many things that I really don't love the hands that I, the cards that I'm holding for a bluff here. As sad as it is, I think that I just have a horrible candidate for doing anything other than giving up. Well, Maria made the fold, and am I right in saying our opponent was a little generous at that point? He was, he was. So he actually showed me 10-8 of spades. So he had flopped a straight. Yeah, it just seemed like he got the absolute maximum. Dara, when you see a hand like 10-8 shown to you in that spot, were you putting that hand into the perceived range? I definitely wasn't because like when he opens in under the gun plus one, if you look at any reasonable chart from, you know, Raise Your Edge or Run It Once or any of those sites out there that have opening hand charts, 10-8 suited never features from that seat. And actually, when I started looking at this hand first before I checked what his hand was, I didn't actually put that into the opening range. Yeah, well, I guess the theme here is playing your monster draws. I have to say a lesser player would have just lamped it in on the flop. I think I'm one of those. Um, so fair play for sort of acknowledging or seeing the danger that was maybe out there and realizing that having raised as part of your plan on the flop, that going for a continuation of that, if you like, by, by shoving all in with what you would have perceived as maybe some fold equity, although we know, of course, now that there was absolutely none, uh, would have cost you your whole stack. Building it back up from a third of a stack is always something we can do as poker players and it's very important to preserve those few chips as Dara said this is a tournament it's massively important if we can hang on in there in a tournament of this nature by not making a mistake like that Dara? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the flop is the real turning point in this hand. And I think if we had known how loose he was and that 10-8 suited was possibly in his range, on the flop, we would recognize that we don't have as big a range advantage as we think on this board because he can actually have the nuts as well as us. And maybe we would play it a bit more cautiously, yeah. um, possibly go for a check call line rather than a check raise line. I mean, I do like the check raise line because we do fold out a lot of better hands. The problem is once he raises us again, now we have kind of narrowed the range down to A hands. We probably have no fold equity against if we shove and be hands that we're actually not in great shape against that we are going to have to hit our draw but on the upside he used such a small sizing on subsequent streets that we had a profitable situation we didn't hit our draw in this case but we still had a profitable situation so i mean we played the hand fine from that point of view except we should we should just have hit a heart obviously absolutely we should have hit a 10 of hearts it's hitting the 10 actually, <laughs> actually offsuit 10 offsuit 10 yeah <laughs> that would have been great. But um, no, I actually, you know, when I was thinking, this is one of those hands that you think back on, because obviously you lose a lot. And there were lots of decisions in it. And I thought, you know, do I just check call there? And obviously knowing what he had, the answer is yes. But without that information, if I were in that exact same spot, again, obviously, in retrospect, I wish I had just checked called and exercise some pod control. But I still think that, you know, given all the hands I have, I'm probably going to be check raising again, if I'm yeah. in a similar spot. 
Totally, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, the benefit of the check raise is not when we run into ten eight; it's when we run into all those other hands that are actually ahead of us, exactly. Uh, what, that, that are going to fold, or when he just calls and we get to the turn and river with a reasonably wide range. So when we hit our draw, he can't actually be sure that we have the draw, and he's more likely to pay us off. Exactly, exactly, um, and that was my thinking. So I think, you know, even though I lost and I lost a lot, um, I'm pretty happy I didn't bust out of the tournament. Well, Maria, just as it is very important to have friends who lost more money in Vegas, and it's very important to have friends who would have lost more chips in a pot of this nature. So even when you're a loser, you can feel like a winner. Absolutely, absolutely. See, it's all about comparison. You have to surround yourself with the right people. Yeah, but in David's world, he would have lamped it in and he would have hit the river. So it's just a different universe. Well, that would have been a great universe. I, I would yeah. like to be in that universe. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually talking to Jen Shahadi after you left, David, talking about how you'd come over and you'd done a really short Vegas. So you'd come in late and you'd actually left with a lot more money than you came with. And Jen said, yeah, we hate those people. Yeah, I hit and run Vegas this year for sure. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I guess I'm not doing any more conversations with you guys because I now must officially hate you as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Maria, thank you very much for bringing us this hand history, a fascinating one. And we hope to have you back for maybe a future hand history or a catch up at some point. Um, I would love that. Thanks, Maria. Thank you, guys. We are joined now by the biggest producer in poker television, the owner of Poker Productions. He is responsible for great shows such as Poker After Dark, The Heads Up Championship, Face the Ace, High Stakes Poker, The World Series of Poker, and more recently, The High Roller Cash Game and High Roller Bowl. Despite being a cash game player, he is also the 2002 Bellagio Five Diamond Classic, seven cards stud winner, and 18-time catcher at the World Series of Poker. This year, he was inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame. He is, of course, the great Maury Escondani. Maury, welcome to the chip race. Wow, that's some introduction. I, I, I don't know what to say to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they gave you a better one at the Poker Hall of Fame induction ceremony. But anyway, my first question for you, Maury, I'm such a huge fan of your shows. In, in fact, I think I speak for all fans when I say I can't imagine what Poker TV would even look like without you. So my first question is, what would Poker TV look like without Maury Escondani? Well, I mean, I, I hate to imagine nobody else would have picked this up. The shows were really existing in every poker room across the world anyway. You know, you could walk into any poker room and immediately find your show, meaning you would find the table that people are sitting around and chatting and having fun, playing good poker, but in the meantime, making sure the time is passing with lots of clever conversation. And it wasn't creating something. It wasn't scripting something. It was just bringing that to television and having faith in the game and the players that it would be something that the public would enjoy. Uh, Well, before we go into your work as a producer in more detail, I want to actually talk about your playing career. You have almost $600,000 in lifetime winnings with cashes stretching back to 1985. And you actually cashed five times in the space of nine days during the 1987 WSOP. What was that period of time like in poker? Well, for one thing, the field was much smaller. World Series or tournaments were gathering of friends that you hadn't seen, people that lived in. Obviously, it's the same now, but uh, you know, people that you knew and you played with once in a while, they all came together at the same time. So we've had uh, businessmen, recreational players, or professional players that would come to town maybe once or twice a year, but all of them came together for the series and the several tournaments that were happening in town. Like, uh, aside from World Series of Poker, we had Hall of Fame tournaments and we had Grand Prix tournaments. So uh, you would see all the faces that you played with throughout the year all at the same time. So it was kind of fun to know everybody. 
that's not the case now. I mean, you walk into the tournaments, at least for me, I just don't recognize uh, 99% of the people. And the opposite was true. You played with people that you were totally familiar with their style of play. It's different now. Again, sheer number of players that play. And of course, uh, the level that they play the game is so different. They've, they've added so much more scientific data to the game that, you know, it's becoming almost something new that for me to start all over again. That's really interesting. Um, well, one of those caches in 1987 was in the main event. That was, of course, the year of Johnny Chan's first win, part of his back-to-back victories. You came 15th then in the main in 1993. I think that was Jim Bechtel's year. 20th in 1997, the year, of course, of Stu Unger's third main event victory. And another cache then in 2010, the year Jonathan Duhamel won. The main event is the only poker event, I guess, to have been televised all through that period. How has coverage of a change down the years? And if it had been your baby prior to 2011, how would you have done things differently? Well, I haven't thought about like, how would the main event of uh, 1987, if you're saying that if we were doing it in 1987, how would we have done it differently? Obviously, if that's your question, advent of whole cards, uh, whole cams, and you know other technology that's existing now is allowing us to tell the story in a much richer form. If I were to do something, like if I had come to my mind that there should be a better television production when Stewie was winning it, uh, you know, way back, or when Jim Bechtel and those guys, I mean, I remember, now that you're mentioning the years, I remember playing those. And I remember actually playing with Jim Bechtel. I I remember playing with Stewie the years that they won. How would I tell it differently? I really am not sure. I mean, I don't know what could have been done more. You know, like, I wouldn't have thought about, hey, let's show their whole cards. I probably would have asked them to record it. I mean, I don't know if they would have <laughs> told the truth or not. <laughs> the players were not going to show their whole cards. That's That was a very unusual thing to think about. And uh, it was it took somebody from outside of poker, as you guys all know about Henry Ornstein, to uh, keep singing in my ear that they will show it because television, the power of TV, is a lot more than I recognize. And sure mm-hmm. enough, it was true when we started talking to the players and asking them about showing their whole cards. They agreed. So answering your question, I think people were handcuffed. Before advent of whole cards and modern technology that we have now, they were handcuffed how to tell the poker story other than just making it a documentary. Speaking of Stu Unger, one thing I always wondered about is what he would have actually been like on poker TV. Do you think you could have included a personality like his on, for example, high stakes poker or was his wild side perhaps too wild and unpredictable for TV? It would have been unbelievable. I've played a uh, cash game with Stewie uh, several times over the years and from uh, not as much no limit, believe it or not. It was mostly limit games and uh, he is he was the wildest ever. I mean, you could, uh, I would just love to have seen him in today's environment. It almost would have been man against machine, (laughs) you know, like uh, all the, you know, just to see how his reaction would have been to people that played maybe a little faster than him in certain, certain situations. I'm sure he is uh, itching to somehow get back here and show them (laughs) what he could do uh, under these uh, circumstances. Indeed. Well, 
I must admit the first time I ever heard your name mentioned was on High Stakes Poker when I think one of the players broke the fourth wall to speak to you and interact with you between hands. The second time was when Phil Helmuth was priming himself, I believe, for a uh, classic poker brat temper tantrum on the first episode of Poker After Dark and he was shouting for Maury to come and adjudicate something or other. How involved do you get with the players in terms of directing them in those situations? It is a TV show after all. Well, poker players always have easier time to reach out to another poker player. Even if, uh, let's just think of a dispute that could happen, any cash game. Uh, yes, they would call the tournament director or in the cash game, they would call the floor supervisor to come and make a decision. But in the meantime, all they're doing is reaching out to the other players. Did you see what happened? Or you, do you agree with that? I mean, was this not out of line? Or blah, blah, blah. Or even today's world, if something happens in a game, you can just see immediately on, on social media, players discussing it amongst themselves. This was nothing different. Since I was playing with these guys almost on a daily basis, it was easy for them to reach out to me, even though like I was really not part of decision-making. And I didn't want to go out and make a decision because I was part of the TV, not the tournament or cash game. And that decision had to be made by the official from the casino. But they would still reach out to me, and I knew what they were doing. And I wouldn't make a decision. I wouldn't. I would stay away. I would still go out there to calm the situation <laughs> down. But like in case of high stakes poker, where there was a big commotion going on between Chan and Daniel Negreanu and Freddie Deeb, uh, still Bob Thompson was the one that came in and you know made the final ruling or what's supposed to be said or done. I can't exactly remember what the situation was. But uh, yeah, I did hear my name, and I would jump out there and then just try to like, calm everybody down. Which is the case, same, same thing, like in the poker room. When people are upset, other players try to calm them down while the floor is making a decision. I remember that first episode of Poker After Dark. It included, as David mentioned, one of uh, Phil Helmet's most legendary rants. Was that premeditated by him or you in any way with half an eye on what made for good TV? Because uh, if it wasn't, it was certainly a fortuitous event to have happen on day one of the show. Absolutely not. <laughs> it wasn't premeditated. <laughs> Phil and I are pretty good friends. We've known each other for a long time. And yeah, he, it was the same thing. He was reaching out to someone who was, you know, like he could easily say, and look what's happening. Is this, is this fair? And expecting me to understand that, you know, while he's thinking of, with his ace-10, I think that's what that, that was. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, while he's thinking what, what the other player is doing everyone else is distracting him and that's not fair i mean it is not i mean we all know as poker players we all know it wasn't fair but of sure. course on the tv atmosphere it becomes more dramatic it sure did well as the producer of a movie you're directly responsible for everything i guess budget financially controlling the business contracts etc actors are paid in full by you so you do have a lot of control however as the producer of a poker show i always wonder that the talent they are paid or most of the time they're paid and under contract of some sort i'm sure but they also put up their own money in those games I wonder, how does this fact change the dynamic with you and the crew? Does it sort of disempower you in some way? Well, I like to think it does. Although for many, many years, and still to this day, every show that we do, we try to make sure players benefit financially, either by directly paying them something, which we used to in the uh, games like High Stakes Poker and the Poker After Dark of the old days and the uh, Heads Up Championship, for example, NBC Sports, uh, NBC at that time, would have some uh, the sweetener, uh, you know, add some 
add some more money to the pot, to the prize pool. But uh, these days, obviously, rake-free games and uh, any other accommodations that we can make, we'll try to make it. It's just a different world when it comes to poker. I, I don't know how to explain it. If you were to take it back to whatever, 20, 20 years ago, let's say, or 15, 18 years ago, you could have started games, and there were some poker shows that nobody put up any money, much smaller prize pool. And somehow it didn't come across like anybody's taking this seriously. Hmm. It's just the nature of poker. You have to have something at risk that hurts and it's yours. If I bring in uh, 20 great players and stake them, and not me literally, but I'm saying that's uh, hypothetically, and let's say we stake them all, even if the stake is huge, let's put up a million dollars for each, it's not going to come across the same. Sure. They're not, they don't have exactly a skin in the game. They're, yeah. they're not losing something that's going to say, ouch. I think that part of poker is very important. Does that make them harder to control, though, in another way? While it is good that they have to put up their own money, and as you say, skin in the game is very important, particularly if you want to create drama and get genuine emotions from those players. At the same time, does it sort of put them in a, a position where they can go, you know, oh, feck you, I don't have to do what you say? You're absolutely right. Yes, it does. And to tell you the truth, we, res- we respect that quite a bit. I, we preach it, we tell the crew members, the camera guys, everyone else, you know, if the player doesn't want something, just let it go. Because after all, they have invested a lot of money, and the ultimate goal they have in their mind is uh, to win money, to show a profit at the end of the tournament or cash game. Mm. But the players also have to understand, and this has been a back-and-forth discussion with some of the players. I think majority of the players understand that television helps them indirectly quite a bit. I mean, look. Without TV, World Series wouldn't go from 120 players to uh, almost 8,000 players this year. So although you're not getting paid directly, you are getting paid indirectly, meaning that the base is expanding much faster with the efforts that production folks are giving you to put the game and you in particular out there for people to see. And the rest of it is up to you. I always tell, you know, like in the cash games that, look, we got it all set up. The stage is here, and now we have an incredibly beautiful studio at Aria Las Vegas, the Poker Go studio I'm sure you guys are familiar with. Yep. And this was a very, very expensive, heavy investment. The rest is up to you. Let's see how entertaining and inviting you are to expand the game, not just amongst the people that are in our industry, but outside. Our former guest, Kara Scott, credited you in our interview with her, with giving her her big break. And Joe Stapleton did something similar recently on Twitter. In fact, you've given many of the game's best broadcasters their start. To what degree do you consider yourself a talent spotter? I am sometimes consider myself very lucky to pick the right talent. But believe it or not, most of it is uh, when, when it comes to me, I have to be running it internally uh, with a particular gentleman named Dan Gotti, who... <laughs> Not many people might not know him, but Dan has been with Poker Production almost from day one. Uh, he's an attorney-turned-producer uh, uh, from uh, Columbia, and he lives in New York, but uh, I rely heavily on his judgment. And he does a lot of research and looks them up, and I think he even went over and saw Joe uh, on his act in New York when he was doing a stand-up comedy act. So uh, I rely on help from a lot of people, and I'm lucky enough to have definitely uh, incredibly talented people surrounding me. 
Damn it, Dara. He was the guy we needed to invite on the show if we wanted to show off our broadcasting chops. <laughs> oh, I have to. <laughs> okay, interview's cancelled. We need, we need this guy. <laughs> Absolutely, you sure do. I would, he, he can shed a lot of light to uh, how he thinks about producing poker. I give him a lot of credit from uh, taking many of our poker tournaments into a sports look that mm. you guys are seeing now. So the yeah. sports look of it, uh, I have relied heavily on his expertise. Well, in a 2015 interview for Card Player Lifestyle, which of course is owned by our friend Robbie Straczynski, who also made our introduction. Thank you, Robbie. You were asked the question whether the new school high stakes pros could put on a show the way Helmut Negranu Matisau used to. You did a long sigh before saying that the online generation players still struggle to interact with recreational players and beyond that understand that they should at least be part entertainers on these types of shows. That was a couple of years ago. Do you still feel that way or have they blossomed a bit? Unfortunately, I do. It's not their fault. It's not anything. I'm not taking away from the new school players. The arena that they came into poker didn't allow them to basically develop the skills that the old school players had. Look, when we came into the poker rooms, there were so many times you were new. I'm thinking of myself now because uh, obviously I can refer to that the best. When I first came to Vegas to play, I didn't know anybody in the poker room. I mean, it was all new faces, but sitting across from them and uh, having the interactions, having the talks and making friends and knowing who's who and all that, you had to basically develop your image by how you interacted with them in and outside the game. That is not something that's readily available when you're playing online with uh, people that are not even in the same region that you're in. And don't get me wrong, I know even within that, they've been able to, uh, online players, form a community that they know one another and now they're like friends and they run together basically like we used to run together in the old days. But still, they don't know what to do with the new faces and new crowd. How do you break the conversation open? When can you, uh, you know, like I used to say, pick on the winners. You can say anything to a winner. It doesn't matter. And uh, <laughs> shut up when it's, somebody's lost the pot. You know, just don't say a thing. You know, it's not, there's nothing right to say. Thanks for playing is not a good thing. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, you might think it's polite, but it's really insulting. So uh, things like that, uh, I can see the younger group having not difficulty but having hard time learning yeah for me i think one of the problems is that because online poker essentially works differently from live poker in the way the players rise to the top like i know a lot of really good funny young online players but unfortunately they're not the top guys because the top guys are the guys who spend you know 18 hours a day with the solvers and they don't develop anything else whereas in live poker you know variance obscures everything anybody can be lucky in one big tournament and often there's just sort of a lucky fortune that the guy who wins the tournament happens to be a very entertaining character as well but yeah I, I, I definitely agree that the online players don't do themselves any favor when they go on tv another thing that's a big part of how the game is presented is poker commentary and there's always a debate raging about how to pitch the coverage david and i both regularly commentate at live events across europe and i've done commentary a couple of times on the wsop live stream over in vegas we both believe that the kind of knowledgeable anchor man alongside the strategy expert is the ideal double act. And it's even better if both are kind of comfortable with injecting some banter into lulls between hands. What's your view on TV poker commentary? Well, it's definitely more and more important now because uh, the less and less the conversation at the table is, less table talk 
means more commentary. You have to fill the air and it should be something, a clever banter between uh, two commentators. It's it's hard to have just one person do the job because it's like we used to do for Poker After Dark with Ali Najad, just sort of giving you a very in and out, going in and out and giving you very, very light commentary. But that was possible because we had table chatter that never stopped. Once you don't have that, table commentary becomes very important by the commentators. And you have to find the right uh, chemistry between people. For example, Ali and Nick uh, definitely make it very entertaining to listen to. In the, old, uh, in the other shows, obviously, Gabe Kaplan and AJ were really fun to listen to. For example, I'm, I'm, I'm such an idiot. Obviously, Norman Chad and Lon McCarran, you never get tired of listening to them. So that's important. Yeah, I think TV, poker, it's an interesting subgenre because you can set up the rules of the universe and you can populate the universe with characters you've handpicked, but the plot in a way is chaotic. Uh, You don't know how the hands are going to go down. So in that sense, it's undetermined. Your most recent new shows have been the Super High Roller Cash Game and Super High Roller Bowl. Cash Game is sort of a cash game. Okay, there might be straddles. Hopefully the action is good, but the format is tried and tested. Similarly, tournaments have a fixed structure. How important, therefore, is it to create story off the felt? It's very important to tell the story of the players, especially the ones that we don't know. Uh, for example, our new World Series of Poker champion, John Sin, uh, mm-hmm. will be playing, ironically, in Poker After Dark tonight. Uh, we'll be uh, filming it in, in uh, six, seven hours, and he'll be coming and playing it. Depending on what kind of budget you have, I would have loved to have followed him this entire week to see what he was doing, what his plans are. I know he's planning to see the world for the next few months. I know he moved all his stuff to uh, storage because he comes calls himself homeless. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it would have been really fun to uh, paint that picture and let the audience see it. Creating heroes always a huge thing for any sporting event especially in poker. You want to be able to root against or for people, and that happens when you know what their story is. People that have been able to overcome habits become popular. People that have been able to overcome a downside of the ugly side of poker and coming back from being broke to making a lot of money. These these are the people that people root for and imagine themselves being in their spot. So, yes, it is very important. But it all becomes a matter of What kind of budget do you have for the shows? And as poker grows again, which is definitely an upswing, I can see, again, bring in lots of features like that to the shows. Well, Maury, this summer you were inducted into Poker's Hall of Fame alongside John Hennigan. I think Mike Sexton said it best when he tweeted, whoever thought in modern day poker the two seven-card stud players would be inducted into the Poker Hall of Fame. (laughs) (laughs) What did that accolade mean to you and how heartening was it to hear the poker community speak so vociferously about how deserved your induction was? Um, I was humbled, that's for sure. Seven-card stud is a game that I I still love over any other game that is being played. always believed the uh, amount of skill and luck was so well uh, proportioned in seven-card stud that we played for uh, almost 25 years that I played. And it it seemed like we never lost interest of the recreational players that played the game. And it's true about Nolan and Holden, too. I, I can't say that's one or the other. You know, when you like a game, you're kind of, more biased towards it and hoping that someday, you know, in the near future, we have all the software, we have all the uh, means of bringing the stud players back for the game to uh, resurrect itself again and uh, gets played uh, all over the United States, which is used to, uh, as we all know, before we introduced No Limit Hold'em to the whole world, seven cards there was the game. 
I played with John Hennigan quite a bit in the old days. And um, I have a lot of fond memories from him. He truly is a class act. And it was double fun to get inducted with uh, him. So that made it really so much more uh, of a special moment. Well, finally, Maury, I think it's fair to say, and actually I think you said it yourself just moments ago, that you're optimistic for the future of televised poker. Uh, I read an interview with you recently where you pointed to the desire of non-poker sites and more mainstream sponsors to advertise at events such as the WSOP and High Roller Bowls. Can you elaborate on that and maybe also tell us what you feel the future is for televised poker? By all means here, give us the inside scoop on upcoming shows. I think what is going to drive poker to a new level is legislation. I think uh, many people now uh, uh, in, in the industry themselves and should encourage others to join in with Poker Alliance and allow them to run this through. I mean, we know a big decision was made by uh, U.S. Supreme Court on sports betting, and it's just natural for poker to follow. Once that happens, once the game is readily available in everybody's laptop and iPhones to play, it can only go straight up. You know, we saw a very small version of it, in my opinion, uh, between 2006 and 2010. Once this becomes completely legal and states are basically, you know, can play nationally in the United States and, of course, abroad, I feel like sky is truly the limit. There's going to be so many different sites uh, that have interest of making themselves and their brands known. And the best way for that is televised poker. That's by far the best way to get your brand out there, whether it's on linear broadcast or it's on over-the-top uh, channels on internet. Uh, that's fine. E either way, you know, if you can spread the game, you know, if, if you can spread the brand with the game and the events, it's going to promote hundreds of poker shows. So, yes, I believe there's going to be, and I've said this before a few years ago, there's going to be many, many more poker shows in the future than we've had in the past. Well, I love the picture you're painting for us there. Maury Danny, congratulations once again on becoming a member of Poker's Hall of Fame. And thank you so much for joining us on the Chip Race. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, in honour of Jono and his biker adventure, playing us out tonight is the quintessential biker anthem from the 1967 album Axis Boulder's Love. And of course, the soundtrack for the 1969 movie Easy Rider. From the Jimi Hendrix experience, this is It's Six Was Nine.
white collar conservative flashing down the street, pointing their plastic finger at me. So but soon my kind of drop and dive. I'm gonna wave my free flag. It's time for me to die. So let me live my life the way I want to. Yeah. Sing on, brother. Play on.
thanks again to Jono, Maria and Maury. Next week we'll be joined by reigning WCOOP main event champion Stephen Van Zedelhoff and another retired online poker beast, Adam Squee Sherman. Until then, from Dara, Ian and myself, good night and good luck.